1: called Kindness 24-7. How are you doing with your kindness challenge? One of you is doing great. Awesome. (laughs) No, I have gotten a couple of responses back, uh, and thank you for sending those back. Uh, As you take suggestions off of our kindness boards throughout the uh, hallways and entryway, Please let us. You can send it anonymously. All right. Somebody's already done that, and that's okay, because I know some people are like, "I don't want you to know what I did." Uh, just let us know how it's going, so that we can share in the joy of the kindness and the kind acts that are coming from you uh, in in our community or wherever you go. Okay. Today, I, you know, it's interesting. I I've never done a series on Jesus' miracles before. I've preached on miracles of Jesus, but I've never done a whole series on miracles. Now, this series, which will go through next month as well, October, we're looking at key miracles of Jesus. Um, and, and, and we're not looking at every single one of them. It would take basically three months, maybe four months, to do a whole series of every miracle of Jesus. So we're hitting some highlights here. And today, and I don't want, I mean, you could turn there now, but I'm not going to read from it yet. It's from Luke chapter 5. We're going to be looking at uh, the leper that comes to Jesus begging for healing. So don't turn there. Or you Just keep that footnoted and hold on to that. In his book, A Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote this. Do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. Let me say that one more time, because that's not the full extent of the quote. There's a few more sentences. Do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, he writes, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you loved someone you will presently come to love him if you injure someone you dislike you will find yourself disliking them all the more if you do them good uh, if you do them a good turn you will find yourself disliking them less compassion, compassion doesn't always come easy does it because here's, here's how we work. This is the world's way of working, and it so penetrates the hearts and the lives of even believers in Christ and the churches uh, that, that it has distorted really what godly compassion is. Compassion is not only being kind and generous and loving to somebody who deserves it. Compassion is about loving and being kind and generous to those who cannot return it, or maybe will not return it. So, let me ask you this question. Should we be compassionate to somebody who's not compassionate to us? Some of you, it's a toughie, isn't it? It's not easy, because our inclination in our sinful selves, that human nature that is fallen and broken wants to return in kind, What is given to us? What does the golden rule say? Jesus in Matthew chapter seven. Do unto others the way that they treat you. That doesn't sound quite right. So as long as they treat me a certain way, then I treat them the same way they treated me. That's the world's golden rule. Jesus says, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. Do you notice it's in the positive and not the negative? It's not don't do unto others as others do unto you. It is do unto, it's it's basically presuming you are gonna be the first to do. Do you catch that? Okay, I know, it's been a long week, I'm tired. I lost my voice earlier in the week. And so, uh, yeah, I, and I'm getting it back. It's a little raspy today, but are you guys with me? Yes. Okay. How about you guys at home? Yes. Weird. All right. Compassion doesn't come easy. It's It's easy to be compassionate to those that are kind, generous, and compassionate toward us, but it's much harder to be compassionate toward those deemed unlovable or unacceptable according to the world standards. One major aspect of compassion comes from human touch. Did you know that? Did you know we were created with sensory receptors on all of our body? And it's not only to let us know when we're backing into something like a nail that's painful. I've done that before. Or when you are, you know, hitting your thumb with a hammer. Touch is a genuine human sensory type perception that God has endowed all of us with. And what's the purpose for that? Well, in God's economy and in God's kingdom, touch is healthy. And good. What does the world do with touch? They pervert it. So, touch in our country over and over again has become perverted, actually, globally. We call it sexual harassment, we call it assault, we call it any number of things when it goes beyond the line of healthy, correct? Healthy touch within a marriage results in. Intimacy, physical intimacy, which is good between the two who love each other and have been joined together by God. But that kind of touch outside of marriage has not been ordained by God and is unhealthy and deemed impure. So what do we talk about? How is is compassion related to touch? I found this study and it was done in August of 2020. What was going on in August of 2020? And this is research done from the Journal of Gerontology, okay? So this is a top-of-the-line journal, scientific journal, and I'm always really skeptical when I get to secular scientific discoveries and journals and all of that. But I read this through, and this is on the front end of the pandemic, before it really got overly politicized. This is when doctors and scientists were being, uh, were being honest, okay? Written by um, Dr. Patricia Thomas. Listen to what she writes. In the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, this is, again, again August of 2020, We saw stay at home orders across the United States. These orders largely confined individuals to their own homes, cutting off off in person contact with friends and family members and neighbors to limit the spread of COVID 19. There is, a well-established literature, there is well-established literature linking engagement and social relationships to better health and well-being, she says. But those confined to their homes during COVID-19 have had their outlets for social engagement substantially limited. Moreover, the Centers for Disease Control, or the CDC, has suggested that older adults are at higher risk for severe illness from COVID 19, which may prompt them to be particularly wary of social interactions. The pandemic highlights the double edged sword of social relationships during this time. That social relationships are often protective for health, but they increase the risk of COVID 19 disease transmission with potentially fatal effects, particularly particularly among older adults. Now listen, especially pertinent to the COVID-19 pandemic and precautions of maintaining at least six feet of distance between people outside of one's household is the impact of interpersonal touch for health and what it means when opportunities for physical touch are more limited. So now she's gonna break it down and start giving you the results of actually what started happening during that time has continued to happen since then as we socially distance and as we isolate from one another. Physical touch, she writes, may include hugging, being held, greeting with a pat on the back, or a handshake, or close physical contact, and it's been linked to multiple physiological effects such as lower blood pressure, lower heart rate, and higher oxytocin levels. Many of these physiological effects have been related to lower levels of inflammation, suggesting that physical touch may be actually anti-inflammatory. Chronic inflammation has been linked to a higher likelihood of heart attack, stroke, Mortality as well as higher levels of viral infection. Listen to this next one. In studying other viruses, Cohen conducted daily telephone interviews for 14 days, assessing support and strain in social relationships prior to exposing participants to a virus causing the common cold. They found that more frequent hugging in those two weeks before the virus exposure was related to a lower risk of infection. Meaning, if you didn't social distance, you hugged, you patted on the back, you had normal, healthy, physical touch, it actually boosted your immune system so that when you were exposed to the virus, you were less apt to get it or it was less severe in those who did. Less severe illness and a buffering effect on the higher risk of infection among those experiencing more tension or more conflict in their relationships. So those who didn't touch or were experiencing stress and and further tension found a higher rate of infection and a higher severeness of illness. Okay? She goes on to write, Theory and evidence suggests that physical touch may buffer stress, which underscores its importance during the stressful time of living in a global pandemic, that specifically limits physical touch. The stress model suggests that social support is a resource that can mediate the impact of stress, and physical touch is a potential source of social support garnering growing attention. Jakubiak and Feeney found that receiving more physical touch from a spouse while while, uh, discussing a stressor was related to lower stress levels, higher self-esteem, and greater perception of being able to overcome the stressor. Greater uh, Greater affectionate support, which included hugging, helped reduce the adverse impact of the stress of ethnic discrimination and depressive symptoms." Is this boring the snot out of you or you actually kept picking up? Because I want you to hear that. Again, secular scientists and researchers and doctors before this became politicized, Moreover, she says, a combination of high physical touch and high emotional instrumental support can be protective against high blood pressure, which we already talked about. In addition, physical touch, even from people who are not close family or friends, can be beneficial, as is evidenced by the physical impact. Uh, excuse me, by the positive impact of physical touch from nurses on patients, improving their sleep, lowering their blood pressure, giving a better respiratory rate, and decrease in pain. Even the brief touch on a shoulder by an experimenter during one of these studies was related to less anxiety about death. Collectively, now what did we do, and I, I, I don't know, I, you're going to be mad at me for saying this, I'm just spitballing here, so don't be too angry, all right? But what did we do What did we do during that time in the early days of the pandemic? We isolated. We isolated and were only around those who were in our immediate household. My grandmother, who basically helped to raise me when I was a kid, she's like a second mom to me. Do you know she died two months after the shutdown? Not from COVID. Nobody was allowed to go in. My, my mom and her five siblings went on rotation for two and a half years before the pandemic hit. And she was in a facility uh, because of some severe strokes that had happened uh, those two years prior. And when they shut everything down and you weren't, I, I, get, I understand the logic behind not exposing the most vulnerable population, vulnerable population to the pandemic. But there, I watched, at least in first-hand experience, when she didn't get that touch, when she didn't get the holding of the hand by my mom or one of her siblings, and the conversation and the, the grooming by brushing her hair and wiping her face, it didn't take long, and she passed. And, and, and the weird thing was, in those last moments, The nurses actually let let, um, my mom and my my aunts and uncles into that space to be with her in those final few moments. Again, I understand protocol. I understand safety and all of that. And, 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 you know, I've had conversations... uh, over the past three years, if I had to do it over again as a church, would I do the same thing we did as a church? And what we did when we opened back up in June, which was about two and a half months after we closed down. So we closed about mid-March and opened back up the first Sunday in June. Uh, We had several people not come back, understandably so, but we had some that never came back. And the reason was because they were upset we didn't handle it appropriately. But here's the funny thing. We, we did a middle-of-the-road thing. We said, you're adults. You know what the right things to do are. You've read all of the studies coming out from CDC. You can't turn around and not see somebody telling you what you should do in situations like this. We're opening the church back up. Come at your own risk. We were never able to protect you before the pandemic from catching something here, and we won't be afterwards. This thing's gonna be around to stay, so use good judgment and treat the other person as you would want to be treated. Don't assume somebody wants to hug you, because listen, there are a lot of people that don't like that. Just use common sense and good judgment and come at your own risk, and that's what we did. So we didn't mandate masks, we didn't do all of that stuff. Our staff wore masks for a while in a season, but it made people angry on both ends of the spectrum in our church. And we lost families over that because we weren't willing to be one or the other. As we're looking back now, hindsight being 2020, and we were able to look at some of the effects, the negative and the positive effects of the things that we did versus the things we didn't do, we see there's actual damage that occurred in isolation. We see higher rates of suicide. And I think that's... It's a multifaceted reason we're seeing higher rates of suicide, but we started seeing it exponentially increase during that season of COVID up to now. Higher rates of alcoholism, drug abuse, higher rates of virtually everything imaginable that is bad. Why? Because we had been isolated from each other. God created us as communal, relational beings. He created us to physically touch one another in healthy ways. And you see the scientific research of the benefits of healthy touch. So why do I give you all of that before I get to our message today? Because this message is about how Jesus touched to bring healing to someone who was untouchable. So let's turn there, and we're going to unpack this physical expression of touch on an untouchable person that can relate something to us today. It's in Luke chapter 5, starting with verse 12. In one of the villages, Jesus met a man with an advanced case of leprosy. What is leprosy? Well, back in those days, without the medical technology we have today, leprosy was any type of skin disease that you might have. It could be psoriasis. It could be any number of things. The kind of disease, however, that this man had, actually, uh, I forget the name of it, Herman's disease, Hansen's disease, was it actually deadens and kills the nerves of the body, the physical touch nerves. Uh, uh, Don't raise your hand. Those of you who have neuropathy, okay, which is a deadening of the nerves in your extremities, you don't realize when you step on a sharp object that cuts your foot, and you can walk around on it for hours or days, and it could get infected and worse. So Hansen's disease is not neuropathy, but it, it affects the central nervous system to where sensory, the touch sense is, is, is affected greatly. And so somebody with an advanced case of this would have had missing fingers and toes. They may have been scooting around on a mat. They may not have been able to really, well, I don't know. It could have, they may have been hobbling around with the, with the help of a, a crutch or something to help them move along. So this guy comes along. He has an advanced case of this. He probably looks pretty rough, Okay. And when the man saw Jesus, listen to what he does. He bowed with his face to the ground and begged to be healed. Lord, he said, if you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. What does he mean by make me clean? When the Jewish tradition, you were considered ceremonially unclean and unfit to be a part of the general populace of Jewish society if you had a skin disease like leprosy. So he's saying, you can not only heal me of my disease, you can cleanse me ceremonially so I can go back to my family, my friends, and my community. I can be reintroduced back into society because if you had leprosy, you were kicked out of town. They had leper colonies on the outskirts of these places that were far off, so you wouldn't be anywhere near the general populace and potentially contaminate them with your infection. It was basically a death sentence. You were to be isolated from everybody else, and the only people you could be around were those infected with the similar disease that you had. Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said, Be healed. And instantly the leprosy disappeared. And I have to believe if any appendage was gone, when it says he was healed, I'm going to guess it came back. We aren't told that, but the God who can heal somebody from a disease is able to regrow body parts if he necessarily needs to. Then Jesus instructed him not to tell anyone what happened. Why would he say that? Keep in mind, this is the earlier stages of Jesus' ministry. He's still traveling and preaching and teaching on the kingdom of God. He's gathering disciples. He's moving and working. His time had not yet come. Do you remember the wedding at Cana last week? And his mom says, you know, they ran out of wine at this wedding. And she comes to Jesus. They've run out of wine. and And he says, woman, what problem is that of ours? My time has not yet come. What's he talking about? He was talking about the time to deal once and for all with the problem of sin and death, which would have been the close of his ministry through the crucifixion and the resurrection. His time had not yet come. And so he's telling this guy, I've healed you, but don't go spreading it around. Because if it gets spread around, then I'm going to be higher on the profile list for those that are against me and they're going to want to do me in ahead of time. Don't do it. Just keep it quiet. Here's what you need to do. Go to the priest, let him examine you, take along the offering required by the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you've been cleansed. He's saying, don't even tell him I did it. Just go and show him you were clean. Go through the process of being ceremonially cleansed by the priest. Offer the offering as a sacrifice at the, at the temple, and, and, and then you will be readmitted back into society. But despite Jesus' instructions, It goes on to say, the report of his power spread even faster and vast crowds came near him, uh, came to hear him preach and to be healed of their diseases. But he often withdrew to the wilderness for prayer. Okay, what do we take away from this? Here's the key point. True acts of kindness come from a willing heart of compassion. And I say a willing heart of compassion shows a gentle touch of compassion as well and kindness. Jesus' compassion comes in the form of a gentle touch. Do you notice what Jesus does? What does the guy say to him? If you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. What is Jesus' first response? It says Jesus touched him before he said a word. Do you catch that? I don't know why, I've read this passage hundreds of times before. Just this week, it dawned on me, before he even said, be healed, he touched him. He touched him in his broken, fallen, and immoral state of uncleanliness. He touched a diseased man. He didn't heal him and then touch him. Why is that significant? Why is the fact that Jesus breached this command. Significant. Did Jesus break the law of Moses? Technically, he broke it by touching because it made Jesus unclean before he was healed. If you touched a person who was unclean, you became unclean yourself. Whether you contracted the disease or not, just by the mere fact that you touched somebody made you ceremonially unclean then you would have to go through a period of time isolated from the community of faith, and once it was proven that you didn't have the disease, you would have to go through a cleansing ritual and then present yourself to a priest who would then go through the proper processes of making the sacrifices, yada, 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 to allow you to come back into the community. It could take a week to two weeks sometimes depending on the severity of the case. Jesus was willing to step across that line and to enter the man's situation. Do you catch that? What do we do? You got to come to church and hear our pastor. You got to come to church and do this thing or that thing. You are the church. And you go into the world and you touch. The untouchable, you speak and live with the unlivables, and you preach the gospel with your life so that some might be saved. That's what Paul says, I become all things to all people so that in all ways some might be saved. He knows that everybody's not going to be because there will be some who reject the message. But how much more willing are people to hear what you have to say when you enter their space with them? I don't want to condemn the whole church, but the church and our culture has so cocooned itself off from society from the 1960s on up to our day and age that we become irrelevant to the rest of the culture. We basically said, okay, we don't get the respect and the status we once got in the culture, so you now have to come to us. We've got it backwards, guys, ladies. The church in our culture has become irrelevant because it's not on the front lines. If you think back to the pandemic, what did the churches do that I so regret doing? They shut down. Do you know when worst plagues hit in Europe and other places, where was the church? On the front lines. You see, whether you want to scientifically prove that they were integrating within society, going to the worst of the cases, some of them succumbed to the same disease, but many of them didn't. Maybe their immunities were boosted because they weren't isolating, if you want to be scientific about it. Or maybe it was the presence of the almighty living God on them that protected them as they went and they were willing to take the risk for Christ instead of cocooning themselves off and isolating from society that so desperately needed a touch and a word of hope in some of the darkest hours of life. I mean, during that time period when we were shut down, I was so convicted because I started saying, Lord, what do we do? We don't know what we're dealing with. This could be really bad. What if it's like the bubonic plague or what if it's like any number of other plagues the world has known and then I got redirected, not because other people were sending me stuff. I started doing my own research and realized what did Martin Luther do and what did some of the other church leaders do back when plagues broke out in their day and age and I started reading their own words and I started getting convicted The church is to be countercultural, not in an obtrusive way, but in a way that looks like Jesus. I've seen the church be countercultural by beating people over the head with verses and cutting people off at the knees. I, I've seen people wield the gospel like a weapon instead of using it like a surgical procedure to cut out the darkness in people's lives and to show them where they're wrong. Not by pointing a finger of judgment, by opening hands of love. I've seen the church do much damage throughout its history, but have also seen the church do much good. If you're a student of history, you can see where God's remnant, God's church has truly impacted the culture for the better throughout the centuries, and millennia. How when the rest of the world was retreating, the church was charging ahead. How when the rest of the world was ostracizing or alienating, the church was gathering and pulling together. You know where the orphanage You know where the actual orphanage came from? You know where hospitals originated from? The church. The orphans, the widows, the sick, the diseased. See, the secular culture of the day, throughout most of the course of human history, just said, well, they're not worth it. Babies were left in dumps. I mean, this was a common practice, to die of exposure. The Christians in the early centuries of the church would be the ones to hear crying babies in the local dumps and go take them and care for them. Even Tacitus, the Roman historian, is writing, wrote in his letters, these Christians, they don't just take care of themselves, they take care of our own people who we don't even take care of. They love on those who we've rejected. There's something unique about these these guys and ladies. Jesus reaches out and he touches to enter the man's situation, but he doesn't stay in the situation. Here's the point. The church has also misjudged and misdone this thing. The church has stepped into people's situations but has stayed there with them instead of walking with them out of it. Do you understand what I'm saying? We believe and have convinced ourselves that the compassionate thing to do is to stay in a sinful or bad situation with somebody. We don't want to judge them, so we'll just love on them where they are. But see, the point of this is that Jesus touches, enters the man's situation, but then what does he say? I am willing, be healed. And then what does he tell him to do? Stay here in the leper colony and just hang out for the rest of your days. What does he tell him to do? Get off your tuchus now and get to work. Go back into society, do the proper things, and be reentered into society. See, we oftentimes enter a person's situation because we are compassionate but we don't lead them out of it is it more damaging to ignore it or more damaging to sit in it with them and do nothing about it because we're afraid of being rejected or called any number of names because we're not helping somebody through a situation or because we're, we're, we're not telling them what to do Well, I don't know what to tell you to do Well, I'm not gonna tell you what to do either, but I will tell you what scripture says. I will tell you what God's word says. I will show you the example of Jesus who was in situations much like this. Here's what he did. Much like the woman caught in the act of adultery in John chapter eight. He doesn't condemn her for adultery. But what does he do? Once he has not condemned her, he addresses the problem. He addresses her sin. He doesn't say, oh, it's all right. These guys were really mean and hateful. You know, just just be good. He says, go and sin no more. It's not just a pat on the back and a wink, wink. It is a, you know why this happened, right? The law of Moses is accurate. They're telling the truth. You should be stoned to death, but I don't condemn you. They don't condemn you. Now here's the point. You've been given another chance. Go and sin no more. Leave your life of sin. Stop doing this. Jesus' compassion comes in the form of a gentle touch. The second thing is Jesus' willingness to heal the sick and diseased was a declaration of the coming of the kingdom of God. Is there sickness, disease, um, any of this kind of stuff in heaven? We know that because the scripture tells us that. You want to go to Revelation 21 and 22. You can read what that heavenly place is like. So, what is Jesus doing when he's healing the sick, raising the dead, touching the blind so that they can see, the deaf so they can hear, the lame so that they can walk? What is he doing? As the King of Kings and Lord of Lords of this kingdom, he is showing what his kingdom is all about. It is about wholeness and healing and deliverance from the maladies and the brokenness of the world in which we live. He is showing that God's kingdom is greater than any kingdom of the world. Because the kingdoms of the world, what did I tell you they did with their sick, their lame, they're dejected? They left them out by the curb. But God's kingdom doesn't do that. God's kingdom is for everyone who would believe on Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so the imagery we see of Jesus wasn't just about miracles. The miracles were a sign of what God's kingdom is like. That's what the attractive quality of the kingdom of God is like. But see, we live in a day and age where we don't believe God does miracles like that anymore. Many of our churches even preach what is called the cessation type theory. Do you know what the cessation theory is? It is that God stopped doing healings and miracles after the first century. That's what many churches teach today. But We are not a part of that teaching. We believe God still works miracles, does wonders, heals bodies that are broken. Yes, he can do it medically, but he can also do it supernaturally. And we believe in a God who does that. But do we really? Because how many of you would be willing, if you saw somebody sick or diseased, to walk over and say, Can I pray for your healing? It's a bold step. Well, only the pastors and preachers or evangelists are supposed to do that. <laughs> no, if you read the Gospels, Jesus tells his disciples, and who is a disciple? Now, there are the 12, but what does the word disciple mean? Student or learner. And Jesus gives us a mandate in Matthew 28, which is what our vision and mission is, is, is based on. What does he tell His first disciples to do. Go make disciples. So here's what a disciple's responsibility is it's not just to make disciples, but in other parts of the Gospels, Jesus says, You will do greater things than you've seen me do. Do we believe that? See, we're a part of the Church of God. I'm a part of the Church of God tradition, Church of God Anderson, Indiana. We used to have halls at the camp meetings that were lined with crutches, wheelchairs, and all of that in Anderson, Indiana at our national camp meeting days. Because people would come, we would do healing services. Yeah, we were those quacks that most of the rest of the world looks at and goes (laughs) We were holiness people. We've now become more civilized and more educated, and so we don't do that kind of stuff anymore. But if I truly believe that God's word is what it says it is, and it is a timeless version of truth given by God through men to us, and that Jesus Christ is the living word, and whatever came out of his mouth is also timeless, and he says, you will do even greater things than what you've seen me do, then I have to believe that same Holy Spirit power is in us today as it was in them in the yesterday. So what do we do with it? We do this little thing with uh, this little light of mine. See, we teach kids to do this, but then we educate them out of it when they get older because, you know, you've got to mature. This little light of mine, what am I going to do with that? I'm going to let it shine. What am I not going to do? What does light do? It illuminates, but it also exposes what's in the dark. Right? But what is another thing that light does? Light has a purifying effect. So if I am called to be light in dark places, then I'm gonna illuminate what's in the dark, I'm going to help purify what is broken and diseased. If God has given me this calling as a disciple, it's not just relegated to certain people who hold certain offices within the church. It is relegated to the body of Christ who believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. We used to believe this as a church. But believing is also doing. What does James say? You can have faith, but faith without works, what is it? Okay, what does he mean when he says that? You've got to act on what you believe. If you don't believe Jesus heals anymore, then you're not going to act on it. If you don't believe Jesus can deliver people from sinful, broken, and desperate situations, then you're not going to act on it anymore. It's those who believe, truly believe, that act in faith even when they look foolish. You know how many people look foolish in Scripture? Because of what God called them to do? Joshua, take the whole group of uh, Israelites, and I want you to, you see that city, march around it seven times quietly, and then on the seventh day, march around it seven times, and at the end, all y'all, because he doesn't say yuns, all y'all turn and look at the city and scream at it. Now Joshua knows enough to know by this point that he should obey God because he's been Moses' assistant for all these years and seen God do miraculous things. But imagine being just one of the regular Israelites and Joshua's like, hey guys, God told me what we're gonna do. And you stand there and you're listening you're like, you're funny. You want us to do What? I've never seen a wall come down when you scream at it. These walls are 10 feet thick in places and sometimes 30 and 40 feet high. How's our yelling at it gonna break it down? It's not! It's your obedience and the power of God that brings it down. Our obedience and going in faith and praying words of faith can heal the sick. We say in James chapter five, if any of you is sick, what do you do? Just pray that it'll go by quickly. If any of you is sick, just hold on tight. It's going to get rocky, but hopefully you'll survive. That's what it says, and I believe it. No, this is what James says. If any of you is sick, you should go before the elders of the church, be anointed with oil, and the prayer of faith can heal the sick. Well, I've seen people not get healed when we've prayed for them. Yeah. But how many people have you? Seen? Well, we don't pray. I promise you, you will not see healings if you aren't praying for them. If you're not entering into people's situations and trying to bring them to a place of deliverance, not because you can deliver them, but because you have a king who can. Jesus' willingness to heal the sick. And diseased was a declaration of the coming of the kingdom of God. And lastly, Jesus prioritized time alone with the Father. (sighs) If Jesus needed time alone with the Father, how much more do we need time alone with the Father? You see, many of us are running on empty. How many of you? This is not hyperbole, and this is not rhetorical. How many of you are running on empty right now? You've got fumes in your tank spiritually, physically, emotionally, mentally, relationally maybe, you are running on empty. There's no reason to run on empty. We have an endless supply of power, of hope. We just don't feel up. Here's what we do oftentimes, not just in the church, but in society. We go and 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 go, and go until we hit the wall We call that burnout, and burnout plays out differently in some people's lives. Burnout comes out in, I don't know, uh, midlife crises where we we leave our spouses and go do X, Y, and Z with somebody else's spouse, or or we go into drugs or alcohol, or or we we decide we are going to recreate ourselves into something so that we can actually survive the next half to a third of life. You know why it's so hopeless in our culture? Not only isolation, but we've forgotten where our strength comes from, especially within the church. You see, if we're truly to be lights, do you think there's an attractive quality that comes with light? What do bugs do when they see light? (laughs) Right? There's, There's an attractive quality to light. It gives warmth. It shows what is true. It shows what is right there that maybe you haven't seen all along. But see, all too often we are shining with the light that we can muster in and of our own strength rather than being plugged into a source who gives us everlasting light and life. And We think we can do this, that, or the other in our own strength. That's what many of our churches are doing today. That's why we have to have bells, whistles, lights, the best bands on the earth. It's got to be a rock kind. It's got to be all of this and that because we're putting on a show for entertainment. And If it's not entertaining here, we'll go down to the next church that has the best entertainment. See, we have to conjure these kind of entertainment factors because we've lost the power of God in our midst. Dude, the underground churches that are growing by the thousands and tens of thousands, they are meeting in caves and dirt floor areas. Well, I wonder what band they brought in this week, because I think there were a thousand saved at that place. All they have is the Spirit of God and a faith that goes beyond a reasonable doubt. That's all they got. But see, it's funny, when that's all you got, you realize that's all you need. I've often thought, what if lightning has struck this building before? It is grounded. There is a lightning rod from the steeple all the way down. And I've been here, and it's gotten struck, and it's blown out electronic equipment. But I've often thought, what would happen? And you've probably heard me say this before— If lightning struck or some catastrophic thing that happened to burn this thing to the ground, the the fire department got held up somewhere else, and by the time they got here, it was in a heap of ashes on the ground, would North Main Street Church of God cease to exist as a community of believers? I would like to think it would not. But if we are confined to one space and one place, that this space defines us, then we are limiting the power of God. If a building is what defines us, then we've missed the mark. And what is missing the mark called? Sin. Sin. In some cases, I think, how much more effective could we be if we didn't have the overhead of a building that cost $150,000 150 dollars to $200,000 just to keep the doors on, and that's not counting salaries and paying people like myself. And I think, their church is bigger than ours. What are their overhead costs? And not that all of those things are bad. Please don't mishear me. But if we think we need all of this to be the church, our focus is on the wrong God. This is nice, we have been given it as a blessing, let's use it for the glory of God, but not be limited by it for the glory of God. And honestly, ladies and gentlemen, it's time to be on our knees in prayer, alone with the Father. The only time we ever need to isolate, the only time Jesus isolated himself from the crowds, was to be with the Father. That's the only isolation we ever need, to be alone in our prayer closets, to be surrendering to him, to be filled by him, to be praising him in the quiet moments. Because no, Do you know what happened more often than not? If you, go ahead and look. Look at every instance where Jesus got away to be alone with the Father. What happened as soon as he got back? Miracles. Miracles. Every time Jesus got back, he was posed with a problem or a situation and miracles happened. The feeding of the 5,000. Uh, you can't miss this if, you really, if you're really looking. So Jesus says... He doesn't do anything without submission to the Father. I want you to hear what he tells the religious leaders, and then we'll close out. In John chapter 5, the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. What did Jesus do on that, in that specific situation, John chapter 5? He healed a man on the Sabbath. They got TikTok. I want you to hear how distorted this is. The Jesus who would enter people's broken situations no matter the day of the week, but the religious leaders got ticked off because he healed a man on the Sabbath. No. You know what he says? How many of you would get your ox out of the ditch on the Sabbath? You wouldn't leave it there till the next day. It would be dead because he's seen them do that. And they're just trying to find any way to trip him up because they're seeing what kind of a following he's gaining and what kind of power he has. And they think he has the power of Beelzebub or the devil. But the irony is in John chapter 8, if you read on down through the end of that, he's, he's saying, why would Satan cast out Satan? You're seeing the things that I'm doing and you're accusing me of being the, the, the evil one. Why would evil cast out evil? It would be contrary to what evil would want to do. He would want to manifest and grow evil, not cast it out. And that's where we get the house divided against itself, will not stand, that Abraham Lincoln made famous, even though the Bible made it famous first. Jesus replied to them, my father is always working and so am I. So the Jewish leaders tried All the harder to find a way to kill him. For he not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his father, thereby making himself equal with God, which was blasphemy and condemnable by death in the Jewish law, unless it was true. So Jesus explained, hear what he says I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself, capital S, he's referring to himself. I can do nothing by myself. He does only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him everything he is doing. In fact, the father will show him how to even do greater works than healing this man. And then you will truly be astonished or ticked off. For just as the Father gives life to those he raises from the dead, so the Son gives life to anyone he wants. Do you catch what he's saying? (laughs) In addition, the Father judges no one. Instead, he has given the Son absolute authority to judge. Who is going to be the judge and who is the judge? Jesus. So that everyone will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son is certainly not honoring the Father who sent him. He's saying this to the religious leaders. I don't do anything of my own will. I am completely surrendered to the Father. But here's the truth. I and the Father are one. He says that in John 17 and in other places. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's basically telling them, I am God in the flesh. I am am Isaiah's fulfilled prophecy that I am Emmanuel, God with you but I am surrendered to the Father, and I do what he tells me, and I will not, not do what he tells me to do. So if he tells me to do X, Y, or Z, guess what I'm doing? X, Y, or Z, regardless of what you tell me to do. This is the same conflict he had with his mom last week. My time has not yet come. The Father hasn't told me I need to turn the water into wine. As our worship team comes forward to close us out, there's a story told by, uh, of, of General William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, that the day Queen Victoria of England asked to meet with him, listen to what, he, what, what happens, because she had heard so many favorable things about his work in the slums, she asked him for the secret of his success. And listen to his response to Queen Victoria. Your majesty, he replied, some men have a passion for money, some people have a passion for things, but I have a passion for people. Ken Hur writes, truth and compassion meet perfectly in Jesus. Truth without compassion can be hard, unyielding, and uncaring. Compassion without truth can be sentimental, shallow, and compromising. Jesus cared about people enough to heal their diseases, but he cared more about their spiritual sicknesses, which compelled him to teach them about the kingdom of God. A passion coupled with a passion for God, coupled with a passion for people, can radically change society and a culture for the better and bring healing to nations and individuals alike. Church, it's time. As I state every day or every week, now I don't know what we're waiting on. We aren't called to stay with the mustard seed faith. Jesus says with the faith of a mustard seed you can move a mountain, but he doesn't say we should stay there because what did he indicate by the mustard seed? It becomes one of the largest plants in comparison to its size. See, Jesus wasn't saying you need to keep that mustard seed of faith, but that's what our churches do. Just a mustard seed is all we need, that's our motto. The mustard seed, when cultivated, becomes strong and powerful and mighty and huge. Church, let's be that. Let's leave no stone unturned. Let's, let's truly dig in to this thing called faith and go to the one to whom we believe in for the strength and the power for each and every day to be light, to be salt, to go with boldness, Let's pray. Father, when we read your word, we oftentimes read these fantastic stories. We read of the healings that Jesus did, the miracles and wonders of calming seas and storms. But we think those were things back then that they don't really happen now and though we wouldn't really come right out and say that most of us or many of us we live as if you don't do those things anymore we forget that you told your disciples that they would do even greater things than Jesus did Not because they're greater than Jesus, but because their power solely alone comes from Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Remind us that we are not weaklings. Remind us that we are powerful because you are powerful. And that all of that authority that was given to Jesus has been passed on to us as believers in Christ to seek and save that which was lost to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to cast out demons in the name of Jesus, to bring deliverance to all people in all places so that they could come to see you as Lord and Savior of their lives. Remind us that it's about freedom, not bondage, that you've called us to. And you've called us to go into the world with a message of freedom and hope that only comes through your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.
0: Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Maine is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.